Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Winston Churchill once said of his only son, I love Randolph, but I don't like him. It's a sentiment many a parent with a tumultuous relationship with one of their children can relate to, and well describes both how Winston felt about Randolph and how Randolph felt about his father. My guest day details Winston and Randolph's incredibly close and yet terribly complex and combustible relationship in his new book, Churchill and Son. His name is Josh Ireland, and we begin our discussion with how Winston's own harsh and neglectful father influenced his own decision to be a much more involved and ultimately indulgent family man and the way he spoiled a son who is already inclined towards appalling behavior. Josh describes the manner in which Winston and Randolph both bonded and fought and the effect the trouble Randolph caused had on the relationship between Winston and his wife. We then get into how World War II and the way Winston may have encouraged Randolph's wife to cheat on him with an American diplomat affected Randolph's relationship with his father for the worse. Josh explains the outsized expectation Winston had for Randolph and the points at which father and son respectively realized they'd never be fulfilled and the lesson to be taken from their story about the cost of parents imposing their own dreams on their children. We end our conversation by discussing why it is that the children of great leaders rarely turn out well themselves for, as Randolph himself observed, nothing grows in the shadow of a great oak tree. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Churchill and Son. All right, Josh Ireland, welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, well, really pleased to be on. So you got a new biography out about Winston Churchill, but this isn't just any other regular Winston Churchill biography. We look at you know the entirety of his life. You focus in on his relationship with his firstborn son, Randolph Churchill. I'm curious, what kickstarted your project in looking at and writing a biography of this father-son relationship? Uh, I mean, it's quite weird. I mean, I I, uh, I can sort of pinpoint exactly where I was and when. I was on holiday and I was reading Ben McIntyre's really good book about the early days of Britain's SAS. And right in the middle of that narrative, suddenly Randolph, who's Winston's son, makes this sort of extraordinary cameo, you know, right in the middle of the desert, all these tough soldiers, suddenly sort of fat, drunk, angry, clever, rude, and sort of damaged man sort of strides in. And he steals the show for a few pages and then disappears off. And that just got me thinking. I, I realized that I knew nothing about this man. I mean, I was barely aware that Winston had a son. And then the more I read about Randolph, the more I realized that it was really strange that, you know, for all the many biographies of Winston, Randolph barely appears. When actually, when if you look at how Winston felt about him, Randolph was the absolute center of his life. And that maybe realized it was a different way of looking at Winston, a sort of different way of understanding him as maybe as a more human, more emotional, more vulnerable figure. And the other thing I was really interested in was, you know, what it's like to grow up with a man who is sort of regarded as the greatest Briton in history. You know, what effect that has on you, how you ever kind of build a life in that really long and punishing shadow. And, it, and I, I hope we can see in this conversation. It was the, the relationship was fraught. I mean, that's an understatement. I think. <laughs> um, yeah. And but I think to understand Churchill's relationship with his son Randolph, you really have to understand Churchill's relationship with his own father, uh, who's also named Randolph, Lord Randolph. Can you tell us about Lord Randolph? Like, what was he like? And then we can talk about you know his relationship with his son Winston Churchill. Well, Lord Randolph's one of the most interesting and controversial and, and sort of strange figures in the 19th century. He was um, son of a duke, strange, flamboyant, cruel, daring figure. Uh, he revolutionised his party. And then just when he see, it seemed as if power was in his grasp, he threw it all away in a reckless gamble. Outside of his political life, he led an extravagant existence. He spent wildly. He and his wife, Jenny, were plunged into profound debt. And along, even alongside that, he was suffering from this progressive brain disease, which people at the time thought was probably syphilis, but now seems to be something unidentified, but which has a lot of the same symptoms. So his brain was rotting, his body was rotting, even as he was sort of stepping away from the political limelight. But all of this of busyness and all of this danger and all of this excitement left no space at all for his two children, Winston and Winston's younger son, Jack. And that meant that Winston was this very sensitive, shy child who was desperate for attention from a father who barely seemed to notice him. And so there's all these terrible scenes where, you know, Lord Randolph goes to address a political meeting in Brighton where his son was at school and he didn't even bother to cross the road to say hello to his son. 
you know, he barely knew which con- what country his son was in. He couldn't tell you how old his son was. And whenever Winston tried to sort of form any kind of bond with him, he'd have this horrible rebuke where his father basically told him that he was worthless, was never going to amount to anything, and that he was almost ashamed to have him as a son, which had a massive and um, long-lasting effect on psychological impact on Winston. And I mean, what's, yeah, some of these letters are just brutal where he's writing his father and his father just dresses him down. Like, I think there was a moment where Churchill, he decides to join the military, but it wasn't cavalry. Like it was something like that. And, you know, Randolph is like, yeah, you're pathetic. You're never going to amount to much. (laughs) I mean, it's, I just can't imagine any father talking to their child like that. I mean, to do it once is pretty bad, but he did it repeatedly, you know. Even the last letter he writes to him just before he dies, he's just saying, you're never going to amount to anything. You're a failure. You're pathetic. You're stupid. You're worthless. You know, he said, you're going to become a degenerate. You're going to degenerate into a shabby, unhappy and futile existence. And Winston got that letter and he never saw his father again. They were, you know, almost the last words he ever had from his father. And what's so shocking about this, despite, you know, being treated so poorly by his father, Churchill, you know, he still deeply admired and loved his father. Like, why do you think, what was going on there? I mean, can you, can you figure, did you figure out like why Churchill had this romantic ideal of his father, even though his father, in the reality, his father was nowhere near that ideal? I think it was psychologically essential for him. I think he retreated into a sort of fantasy where he believed that, you know, his father would have grown to love and admire and respect him. And everything he did really right through the course of his life was part of this dialogue with his father, you know, trying to persuade his father's ghost that he was worthy of the affection that he hadn't been given, you know, 30, 40, 60 years beforehand. There's this extraordinary short story that Winston writes in the last years of his life where he imagines his father returning to him. And it's just as as if he could never stop talking to his father or thinking about his father. And I think he just needed to believe that his father would ultimately have grown to love and respect him. And so he had that fantasy and, and sort of lived it out throughout his entire existence. And do you think Churchill's, you know, his terrible relationship with his dad, did, do you think that helped him become the Winston Churchill that led England during World War II? Yeah, undoubtedly. I think, I mean, it's, I think the sort of damage that was wrought on him eventually you know that drove his ambition and it drove his sense of purpose and it made him want go further and harder than I think he would have otherwise it, it, that's what instilled in him that sort of ferocious work ethic that sort of burning desire to prove himself so I mean it's a sort of grim irony that you know that Britain's survival in 1940 was all dependent on the bullying cruel behavior of a man 60 years beforehand I think, wasn't it Randolph that wrote, or it might've been Winston's, like something like, you know, most great men, like he even thought about this, like most great men, they had like a really bad childhood. Yeah. And that's Winston's entire line. Yeah. He really, he really thought it was essential as part of the sort of growth of a great man to be subject, subjected to that kind of brutality as a, as a, as a young person, which is what makes his own attempts to sort of mold his own son seem almost perverse and that he took exactly the, the different, the, exactly the opposite approach. Okay, let's talk about his his son. So Churchill had a terrible relationship with his father. He gets married. And at what point in his life did he become a father? Where was he at in his political career? So he's in his mid-30s when he finally married, marries. Uh, he meets a woman called Clementine Hosier, who comes from a similarly sort of damaged emotional background. And they quite quickly have kids. They have a daughter, Diana, a year after they get married. And then uh, Randolph follows a couple of years later. And their marriage coincides with the, the moment that Winston's political career really begins to take off. You know, he becomes the youngest member of cabinet for 50 years. Initially, he's president of the Board of Trade, which isn't a sort of particularly significant role, but it's still important. Then he becomes Home Secretary. And then after that, becomes Lord of the Admiralty, which makes him one of the sort of three most powerful men in the entire British Empire at the time. So he's really flying by the time he actually becomes a father. All right. And so he named his son after his father, Randolph. And as you said, so like Churchill had this really terrible relationship with his own father. He decided from the get-go that he would do things entirely different with his kids, particularly with Randolph. Like he would, where there was uh, scorn, Churchill would heap praise. 
So how did that, what did that look like? I mean, how did Churchill give Randolph the praise and approbation that he craved himself as a child from his own father? Yeah, I mean, I think Winston was very self-consciously a a very, very different parent to how his own father had been. Um, I mean, for one thing, he was just much more present. You know, I'm not sure Lord Randolph ever went, went into his children's nursery. He certainly never gave any of his kids a bath. And Winston was, when Winston was around, and you know, it should be said, Winston had this incredibly busy, extravagant social life, and his work dominated his his existence. But when he could be there for his children, he was this intense, vigorous, charismatic presence. He loved all of his children. You know, he was unashamedly affectionate. But it was Randolph that he adored more than any of the others. And I think, you know, from an early age, all of Randolph's sisters knew that their brother was the favourite. And Winston showed that in lots of ways. I mean, he sort of fed Randolph oysters from the table. He, When Randolph grew older, he would be encouraged to come and sit with prime ministers and great other political figures. And Winston would wave his cigars at David Lloyd George or Herbert Asquith and tell them to shut up and let his son speak. And from a very early age, Winston encouraged Randolph to believe that he would become a great man, that he would probably become a prime minister or some other great figure, you know, he praised him. He told him how clever he was, how beautiful he was, how funny he was. And whenever anyone else tried to discipline Randolph, Winston would step in and protect him. You know, that there were never any consequences, no matter what Randolph did. And Randolph was, you know, an appallingly mischievous child. Winston defended him and would just say that it was high spirits or a sign of his cleverness. Well, let's talk about him being an appalling child. So like, he was a terror from the get-go. And we talk about some of the stuff that he did as a kid that were just like crazy. But Churchill's like, yeah, that's, you know, he's just a clever boy. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so much. I mean, he's just, he must have just been, he was uncontrollable, really. You know, he used to phone up the government departments pretending to be his own father. You know, he'd impersonate his voice. There was one day when... Lloyd, David Lloyd George, who was at the time the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, came to visit the church or so their country house, and Randolph urinated him on him from an upstairs window. In it, no matter what you think about, you know, Hunter Biden, you know, he never peed on Barack Obama's head. I mean, it's just extraordinary. You know, there was never no nursemaid stayed employed by the church for more than a couple of months because usually they'd be broken by this sort of demonic child. You know, and he was charming and he was funny, but he was, there was no one, nobody could, could stop him from doing whatever he wanted. Yeah. The, the story with the, the nannies, like he'd like run them off and like, they would like pack their bags <laughs> and like, he'd, they'd just, be like, um, they'd be chanting at the stairs, nannies leaving, nannies leaving. You're like, what in the. I know. I mean, and it, it's just, it's sort of funny on, on one level. And then also just a, a sort of horrifying to think what all these sort of poor teenage girls must have gone through, you know, the sort of big country house suddenly this sort of blonde angelic demon starts yelling at them and there's no one that will protect them from him and yeah like you said during this time churchill really didn't do anything about it no i mean if anything he encouraged it i think he saw it as as a sign of of his son's vitality you know a big part of winston's own myth was that as a child he'd been you know the naughtiest boy at harrow that he'd been stupid at school that no one had thought he would make anything of himself that he was forever getting into fights that he was forever getting into arguments and the same was true of randolph so when when randolph fought with people at school or when randolph's teachers tried to remonstrate with either randolph or winston winston would just laugh and i think randolph was self-consciously imitating his father you know he knew that legend about Winston as, as the naughty child I think he saw it as a sort of important like part of being a Churchill it was a way of like demonstrating that as a Churchill you didn't follow other people's rules you know Winston used to drive on pavements because he didn't want to wait in queues and I think it was the same thing that you know we're part of this aristocratic family we have we hire we hold ourselves to different standards to anyone else so we're not going to be following your sort of petty, boring rules. And that's what Winston did. And that's what Randolph did. And do you think, I mean, so yeah, Randolph was a terror from the get-go. Do you think there was like a temper, like an inborn temperament that contributed to that? Or was it, do you think it was primarily driven by Churchill's overindulgence? It's difficult. I mean, I think there's something innate there. there's, There's lots of talk about the sort of streak of Churchill madness that goes from 
Lord Randolph to Winston to to Randolph, you know, that there are generations of, of Churchills that are sort of suffer from this sort of malady. And I think there's probably some truth to that. And I think clearly whatever was there planted there by nature was sort of encouraged by Winston's own behavior. You know, he created a perfect environment for that, that bad behavior to grow. All right. So when Randolph was a boy, he was peeing on, you know, prominent politicians, <laughs> but then as he got into young man, like the problems just got bigger. Uh, like what was he like high school? And then in early on in his, his own sort of, you know, launching off into adulthood, what, what sort of problems did Randolph create for Churchill? I think he, I think the thing about Randolph is that all of Winston's faults are present in him, but they appear in a sort of grander, more extravagant form. So Winston was barely out of debt right through his life, but could just about keep on top of it. Whereas Randolph ran up unbelievable amounts of debts by, by spending money he just didn't have. You know, he'd buy diamonds for girlfriends or friends. He'd turn up at Winston, when he was still a student, he'd turn up at Winston's house in a chauffeur-driven Bentley. You know, he bought flowers, he bought drink. He, when he stayed in a hotel, he'd stay in, you know, the master suite. And all of this went alongside like a ferocious appetite for drink and sex and eating. You know, there are sort of the extraordinary descriptions of him his eyes growing as he saw a pork chop being brought to the table and he argued with everyone he, he never stopped talking when he was at um eton at high school you know there were other people that actually threw him out of a window to see if he would stop talking and they lobbed him out of the, the first floor of the window saw him crash to the ground and he just carried on talking but mostly it was arguments you know he was arrogant he was clever and he thought he knew better than anyone else and was never afraid of speaking up which is a really admirable quality sometimes but clearly could get him to a lot of trouble. And this is also when you start seeing like what people described as rows, bloody rows between Winston and Randolph. Like what kind of arguments would they get in where, I mean, it would basically, it would be like yelling matches essentially. Yeah. I mean, the two men loved each other. I mean, they really deeply loved each other. And I think that love meant that all that affection, all that emotion meant that most of the time, they were like a sort of adoring couple, you know, they tell each other how wonderful they were. Uh, they'd spent, they'd spend weekends in each other's company. They'd go on holiday together. They'd go drinking together. They'd eat in restaurants together. They'd plot together. They'd go hunting together. But that close proximity also meant that when things went wrong, that it was so charged that they went really, really wrong. And they were two men who just gargantuan tempers, you know, that, Randolph couldn't control himself when he lost his temper. You know, he'd throw chairs, he'd storm. And Winston had exactly the same faults. And often the arguments they had were over tiny things. They were perceived slights. They were like, you know, sort of tumultuous r- romantic relationship. You know, they, they could be jealous of each other. They could be jealous of, they could be disapproving of each other's behavior. And then very often Winston was brilliant at bringing them back together. You know, that they, he, valued his son's friendship and his friend, son's love and, and couldn't bear the idea that anything could stand in the way. So after a huge argument, you know, Winston would invariably be found going to Cartier's to buy a new bracelet or a watch for his son to try and make up. But there were times when their arguments were so fierce that Clementine, Winston's wife and Randolph's mother refused to be in the same room as them. It, was, it must have been terrifying to see. They're both big men. They both drank a lot. They both had loud voices. They were both very sure of themselves and they didn't care what anyone else thought about them. Well, speaking of Clementine, like this was another, this added to the tension between like with Churchill and Randolph because Clementine was extremely protective of Winston Churchill. She even said that like my whole life now, once they got married, is like devoted to Churchill, Winston and his career. And like Randolph got in the way of that. And Clementine, I mean, she... Kind of, I mean, she didn't really like her son. I mean, that's like, I don't know how the, I, <laughs> no, not I mean, the nicest way. Like, she didn't like Randolph at all. I mean, what was that relationship like between Randolph and Clementine? Yeah, I, mean, I think Randolph resented his mom, mother for pouring everything she had into his father. And there was very little left over for the other children. And I don't think he ever forgave her for that. And 
as far as Clementine was concerned, I think she saw Randolph as the incarnation of all the worst parts for her husband. You know, she admired Winston immensely, but she also knew that he was susceptible to extravagance and gambling and drinking. And and she thought Randolph was a bad influence on her, his father, which is sort of a strange way of looking at the world. And I think also she was deeply jealous of him because Winston, especially in Randolph's for early years clearly privileged him over anybody else including her you know she thought that she was at the center of his life and then you know as Randolph enters his 20s she realizes that she's been pushed to its edges and I think she found that very hard and so they were in, in a sense they were in constant competition for Winston's affection and love and attention and that meant that their relationship was incredibly uneasy suspicious and very very fraught did it affect you know, Clementine's and Winston's marriage? Like, was there tension there because of Randolph? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for a long time, because Winston's so sort of uninterested in what was going on in anyone else's head or heart apart from his own, I think he didn't notice. But as time went on, I think it became maybe the only significant argument that he and Clementine ever had. You know, that they, this was this was the one thing in their marriage that, threatened to push them apart because um, they had this long successful bond for, you know, for upwards of 50 years, but Randolph was the only thing that ever came between them because Clementine felt that Randolph could potentially be the end of, of Winston, that, that Randolph could be the reason that Winston wouldn't go on to, to achieve all of his dreams. And so she did everything she could to try and protect Winston from his son Whereas Winston was obsessed with Randolph. You know, he wanted to spend as much time as he could with him. He wanted to do everything he could to help Randolph. And so those two views, were they couldn't really be reconciled. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So uh, what's interesting too, you note in the book, when Churchill was in his wilderness years, when he was basically out of power, sort of a pariah, this is before World War II. This is when his relationship with Randolph got really, really close. Randolph became a confidant. They spent a lot of time together because Churchill didn't have much going on. But then World War II starts. Churchill is made prime minister. How does their, the relationship between him and Randolph change with the start of World War II? So I think it changes almost overnight after Winston becomes prime minister. You know, that they had been accustomed to phoning each other all the time and writing letters and spending huge amounts of time in each other's company. And and in a sense, although Winston had been a cabinet minister, there was a sort of, you could see that in the wilderness years that maybe his career was coming to an end and, and it must've felt to Randolph as if the future was his. And then suddenly Winston becomes prime minister. He's surrounded by the whole apparatus of government. You know, he doesn't have time to think about his son because Britain's in the greatest peril it has been maybe for almost a thousand years. And so Randolph finds himself very abruptly pushed to the margins of his father's life. And he finds it very, very difficult to sort of adjust to that new status because he used to be able to just walk into his father's room and start talking. And now there were secretaries in his way or generals or chiefs of staff. And I don't think he, he ever, their relationship really ever recovered from that yeah the way you describe it it was i I can see this being really hard for randolph there was instances where he wanted to see his father but churchill's private secretaries wouldn't let him and like wrote these like sort of patronizing letters like yeah exactly be be a good boy (laughs) and leave your father alone (laughs) exactly which is it must have been devastating to, to randolph because one of the other things that you know when Winston becomes prime minister, he very quickly assembles a new government and he gives appointments to a lot of the people that had stayed loyal to him right through the wilderness years, but also to the people that had been responsible for his time in the wilderness, the, you know, the sort of conservative hierarchy. Winston was very, very quick to forgive the people that he knew would be necessary to help win the war. And Randolph couldn't bear that. He couldn't bear that he'd been excluded, that his loyalty hadn't been rewarded. And he couldn't bear that the, the things that had made him so useful and necessary to his father, you know, his pugnacity, his willingness to pick fights, his bravery, his run back, his um, recklessness, all of that was the last thing in the world that his father needed. His father needed someone calm and steady like 
like Clementine. And, you know, Randolph didn't help his, his case. You know, he got, he'd get drunk and lose important maps when he parked outside Downing Street or he'd, I mean, he, all of the stories come back to Randolph being drunk and shouting at his father. You know, he'd berate him about strategy over dinner. I don't think he could ever adjust to the fact that he was no longer an important person. He wasn't a partner of his father. He was just the prime minister's son. And that doesn't carry any weight. Yeah, these arguments, like he would do it in front of generals. And like Randolph would actually, I mean, he had no regard for hierarchy, military hierarchy when he was in his father's presence. And he just, he dressed down generals and saying, you're doing your strategy wrong and accuse people of cowardice. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, it, it's bold and it's brave and it's sort of funny. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of those generals were really pompous and, you know, at the time the war was going really badly. So they probably, their strategy was probably wrong. Whether Randolph knew any better is sort of open to question. But um, yeah, I just think he couldn't find a way of being useful to his father. And so he just let go. You know, he didn't have any control. He wasn't able to control himself. He wasn't able to reconcile himself to the fact that he was this sort of spare part now. And I think the thing he found intensely frustrating, and, and I think it's impossible not to feel sympathy for him was that he knew that Winston revered bravery above all everything, almost any other quality. And he was desperate to be able to get to the front line, to fight, to show how brave he was and to secure his father's admiration. But Winston was never willing to let him do that. He would say that if Randolph were killed, he wouldn't be able to carry on as prime minister. So he found one way or another to stop him from going to the front. So Randolph was just, you know, a staff officer kicking his heels, unable to contribute anything meaningful, unable to do anything that would make him stand out. And he became angry and bitter and he took it out on the only person that he knew to do. And that was his father. And his father also during the war would find excuses for his son to meet him somewhere. You know, when Churchill was flying somewhere during the, in the, the, the theater of war, he would somehow figure out, Oh, I need Randolph here for whatever reason. And Randolph would show up. And I mean, I mean, it, what do you think was going on? Like, why do you think Churchill felt like he needed Randolph by his side? I think, you know, Randolph was probably the most disruptive presence in Winston's life. You know, he caused trouble. He caused arguments. He got drunk. He picked fights. But he also it, understood him in a way that I think nobody else did. You know, that they had spent so much time that they kind of inhabited almost the same mental space. You know, they had talked about the same moments from the past. They'd gone through so much together already. They shared so many of the same opinions and views on the world. You know, they, they liked to drink and they liked to gamble. And I think Winston found his, comp- his son's company a huge support, and that, which is something that I don't think anyone around him ever quite understood or appreciated. I think they all they saw was this sort of whirlwind who was going to come in and, and break apart their carefully laid plans. But actually, I think there was Randolph actually was essential to his father's well-being and to his ability to relax in the way that uh, enabled him to sort of prosecute the war so relentlessly and so effectively. You know, he needed that outlet and Randolph was that outlet. You know, Randolph understood that Winston would w- want to start the bed, the day in bed in silken dressing gown, smoking and drinking. And that, that for Randolph, that was absolutely normal. Whereas for, you know, sort of tightly buttoned civil servants, it was intolerable and was just more sympathetic. And um, I think probably right through Randolph's life, he gave his father the affection and sort of unstinting admiration that Lord Randolph had never given Winston. And when Winston needed that, that's when he sort of picked the phone up and said, send me my son. So something that added some more complication between the relationship between Churchill and Randolph was Randolph got married, his first wife, Pamela. This is kind of an interesting thing because it also, there was like implications that had effect on the war uh, a bit. <laughs> so can you tell us about uh, Randolph's relationship with his first wife, Pamela, and like Pamela's relationship with Churchill? Yeah, I mean, the marriage should have been a really good thing. You know, Randolph knew that the two things would please his father once the war broke out. One was that he would fight with distinction and bravery and two that he would find someone he could marry and produce an heir winston was absolutely obsessed with sort of the idea of creating a a dynasty of churchills so absolutely central to that was the idea that randolph should produce a son of his own so randolph wasted absolutely no time almost within within the weeks of 
war being declared, he proposed to, I think, seven women, and yeah. <laughs> all of them said no. Right, uh, and it's because you know, he, was, he, was, he, he was having an affair with two, two women at the time. Right. It, said no, and then found, you know, seven unsuspecting debutantes who also said no. You know, I think his reputation preceded him. And then finally he found someone who did say yes. Pamela was from another aristocratic background, maybe a tiny bit more provincial than the Churchills. And I think she was desperate to escape, promised to be for her a boring routine existence in the backwaters of, of England. You know, for her, the Churchills was a sort of passport into this exciting, gilded, glamorous political world. So they married a few months later. She gave birth to a child, uh, Winston. And on the face of it, everything was quite happy. Pamela Winston got off, got on incredibly well. She was brilliant at anticipating his moods. She soothed him when he was overwrought during the sort of most tense times in the war. And he adored the fact that she had produced another heir. Unfortunately, all of the faults that had made Randolph a difficult son also made him an appalling husband. Um, when his own son was being born, he was in bed with the wife of another man, you know, had to be summoned back from London at four in the morning. And he carried on drinking, he carried on cheating on her, he carried on gambling. And so, and it all, it all came to a head when finally he got posted to the Middle East and on the ship on the way over, he managed to lose their entire, I think he lost maybe four years worth of salary and then sent her a sort of pathetic note saying, I made a bit of a mistake. Do you think you could sort it out? which I think was the moment when I think she felt as if their marriage came to an end. And that coincided with the arrival of Averill Harriman in the United Kingdom. He was President Roosevelt's special emissary to Churchill. He was the person that would determine how much support the states, which, weren't, which, were still, which still hadn't entered the war, would provide Britain, which was looking increasingly beleaguered and alone in a war that was beginning to look unwinnable. And there was an immediate spark of attraction between Averell and Pamela. And Winston, I think, recognised that that relationship had a value to him, that having someone who was so close to the man who was in turn so close to President Roosevelt might help him achieve his war aims, whether by persuading Roosevelt to send more men and shi- or more ships and munitions and supplies or just having someone who could sort of engage in pillow talk, who could find out what the Americans were thinking. I don't think for a second he initiated the relationship, but I think he knew it was happening and I think he encouraged it. He certainly never showed any sign of disapproving of the fact that his daughter-in-law was sleeping with another man. They kind of used her like a courtesan. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> it underscores you know the, the other aspect of Winston, which made him such an effective war leader, but maybe inhibited his abilities as a father. He was incredibly ruthless. You know, he was a man who could berate generals for who, whose units hadn't sustained enough casualties. He could cut people that weren't useful for, to him anymore. You know, he knew what he needed to do to win the war. And although he had spent years telling everyone, anyone who mattered that Randolph was the most important person in his life, when it counted, when he really needed someone else's help he was willing to allow that to happen and what complicated the relationship even more is that randolph and avril hammerman they became kind of pretty good friends while hammerman was having was having an affair with randolph's wife yeah i think they were sort of enchanted with each other i think they had a great time they uh, randolph was stationed out in the middle east at the time avril made a tour of egypt and they spent hours in each other's company you know, they went on boat trips, they went to restaurants. Randolph unwisely told Averell about all the affairs he was having in the Middle East, which I don't know whether maybe that made it easier for Averell when he got home, but he seemed pretty pretty comfortable in that that sort of deception. And I don't think Randolph ever particularly I don't think he ever really blamed Averell for it, what had happened. I think he thought he saw himself as a sort of man of the world. He thought it was beneath him to, for men to argue about women. What he resented, what he bitterly resented and what caused the wound that would probably never ever heal was his sense that his father had betrayed him. That was something he couldn't bear. Yeah, so yeah, Randolph and Pamela end up 
getting divorced. And you you make the case that that really, that kind of harmed the relationship between Churchill and Randolph because Randolph just for the rest of his life pretty much felt that Churchill was responsible for it. Like he knew about it and he took Pamela's side over his side. Yeah, I think he always felt as if not only did Winston condone that relationship and I think Randolph would have accused him of actually being the person behind it. You know, the Daily Mail in, in when they serialized the um, my book in, in England had a headline which described Winston as having pimped out his daughter-in-law, which I thought was a bit strong. But um, Randolph, I think he just, he couldn't ever get over it. You know, even years later when Winston was the sort of frail, old, weak person sitting on um, Aristotle and Nassus's yacht, Randolph would still be berating him and he'd be screaming in his face. It was something that cut Randolph deeply. And no matter how many times he tried to heal that wound, he, he could never quite staunch the blood. It, it would still have the capacity to hurt him decades later. And the thing that amazed me as I was reading, particularly during the war years, the relationship was that, okay, Churchill, he's leading the allies in World War II, but the same, all this, that's a big undertaking, but at the same time, he's got all this family drama going on. I'm just like, how does this guy doing this? Like, how is he dealing with like his son yelling at him, his wife being mad at him because, you know, his, you know, he's, he's forgiving his son. He's got his daughter-in-law. It's like, how did, how did he, how did this guy do that? Like without keeling over from a heart attack? I, I think most people would have just died <laughs> i mean i think one of the interesting things is is a lot of the times his sort of biggest flare-ups with randolph happen around the time of greatest tension in the in the war so um that first the the this, the terrible arguments they had after randolph found out that um pamela had been cheating on him came just as the japanese were rampaging through asia in late 1941 early 1942 and there's an appalling row they have in 1940, in the summer of 1944, just after D-Day, when although things were going pretty well, there was still a lot up in the up in the air. So it's difficult to know whether, you know, that there was something in the atmosphere which should have threw them against each other even more aggressively. But yeah, I think it is extraordinary that that amongst amidst all of that chaos. Winston can still focus. I mean, I think that was one of his great gifts. You know, he had this ability to to you know, to sleep when he needed to. I mean, I think the best thing he did was send Randolph to Yugoslavia as much as he could to get him out of the way. And I think you know he recognised the value of sleeping and eating and drinking and having time to do things that weren't anything to do with the war. But I don't think having your son screaming at you or your wife not talking to you is a recipe for functioning well at work normally and even especially when if you are you know running a war effort so yeah i it is extraordinary that you know in the days after d-day when you would have thought that all of its attention should have been focused on what was happening in normandy or in you no know, other parts or the far east and he was thinking about his son you know he was writing letters to his son you know that, that at precisely this time randolph was writing to his mother begging Clementine to tell Winston to stop interfering in his marriage, you know, that he couldn't help himself. He, he was, as I said, he was obsessed by his son. So the war ended, did their relationship get any better after the war? I think the thing about their relationship before the war was that whether they were up or down, whether they were screaming at each other or hugging each other, they, their relationship was just unmistakably sort of exuberantly alive you know it was so living and so so energetic and it that quality disappears completely after the war i think you know that winston as i said had always needed that sort of love and affection that randolph gave him and he needed it during the wilderness years more than he ever had before you know there was he was subject to so much criticism so much ostracism that he needed that support that winston that randolph gave him and then after the war, he's this hero across the whole world. You know, he goes into restaurants and people start cheering him. You know, he, he goes into a French cafe and doesn't have to pay for a drink. And he's, he's showered with money and awards and, and praise. And so he doesn't need that from Randolph anymore. And I think also something essentially breaks during the war. It's the, the distance that him becoming prime minister creates and also all the ferocious bloody rows they have together. 
And I think, you know, for a long time, Winston liked the energy that Randolph provided. He liked the banter and he liked the aggression and he liked the arguments and that's what he thrived off. And then I think after the war, he was exhausted. And the last thing he wanted was, you know, this fat son bustling into his room, telling him what to do. And you could see that, although I don't think they ever lost their love for each other or their capacity for affection, I think they stopped liking each other. And that's sort of heartbreaking. You know, Winston started spending time with um, his son-in-law, uh, Christopher Soames, much more than he ever would his own son. He started almost shunning him. You know, that if you look at the visited books at Chartwell, where Randolph had been a constant visitor before the war, he barely comes at all in comparison after it. And this is really, there's all these very sad stories. There's one terribly sad story, Randolph, on one of the rare vis- visits he does make, he sees that his father has these wonderful collection of Mark Twain's, I think signed by Mark Twain, that he just left mouldering in a cupboard. So he asks his father if he could have them and Winston doesn't really say anything. And then that night it starts raining. Randolph is just having a walk after dark and then he sees his father clad in a raincoat carrying a towering pile of Mark Twain books off to go and hide them from his son. It's, it feels sort of symbolic of, of where their relationship was after the war. You know, we've been talking earlier on, you know, since Randolph was a boy, Churchill had these aspirations that he would be a great man, right? Be prime minister even and kind of create this Churchillian dynasty. And uh, Winston believed it and then Randolph believed it. Was there a point where both of them eventually resigned themselves to the fact that Randolph wouldn't amount to much? Yeah, I think Winston realized sooner than Randolph. I think I think Winston knew as soon as the war was over. You know, when Randolph had been in parliament for five years over the course of the war and then lost his seat in the 1945 election, which was the last time he would ever be in Parliament. And I think Winston knew then. I think Winston knew that his son's flaws were too deep and his anger was too great and he drank too much. He caused too many arguments. He'd fallen out with almost everyone in the Conservative Party's hierarchy. Randolph, I think, held on to that dream for longer. I think he, he felt that all it needed was for his father to disappear from the scene, whether that was to die or to walk away. You know, I think he thought that as long as his father occupied a central place in British politics, then there would never be space for him, which, which I think was true. But I think it also allowed him to believe that what had happened to him wasn't his own fault. And that at some point, everything that he thought would happen would, would sort of magically appear. And the sort of sad thing is that actually it's only when he lets go of that dream in the late 50s that he actually sort of, begins to approach something like happiness you know i think when he realizes that that pressure has been lifted that he doesn't need to think about that anymore then he can sort of begin to enjoy life for what it is rather than for what his father says it should be yeah you talk about it i think a, a, a big moment for randolph with his relationship with his father so there's all this you know this distance between them after the war randolph's dream since he was a boy was to write winston's biography and he never asked his father to do it because he think that'd be presumptuous. But eventually, Churchill asked him, asked Randolph to write his biography. Like, what did that mean to to Randolph, and how did that change the relationship? I think it meant everything to Randolph. It was a sign that Winston did, in fact, believe in him and value him. And I think it more than that, it allowed it offered his life a purpose that it just hadn't had before. That it allowed him to have a part in shaping his father's legend, the memory of his father. And it allowed him to sort of become closer to him because, you know, he was given all these incredible documents from his father's life. He was able to go and talk to people who'd been significant figures in Winston's life. And I think that whole process allowed him to sort of reacquaint himself with the man that he'd loved so hard and so long for for so many years. It was, you know, he would say it was the only worthwhile thing he did. And I think it brought him a happiness that had eluded him for, for no decades. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it's 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 sort of melon like a happy melancholy because, all right. So he he had these aspirations to be a great man because his father, you know, basically told him that he'd be a great man. But it ended up like he did do something great. He's there's this quote I'll read it that you you quote him. He says about the biography. He says it's a monu- monument to my father, and I'll have left something worthwhile, something worthy of me. I've never done that before. It's nice to leave something behind that someone will remember. So he he did this great thing, but it was about his father. It was it wasn't even yeah. him. It, 
nothing is ever purely his own. You know, everything, everything he has always comes from his father in some way. You know, that he can never really claim to have achieved anything on his own merits, which I think is crushing when you look back at your life and that's and you think that. I think for anyone, I think you want to feel as if you've established your own identity or you earn everything that's come your way. And and you know, for all that people I think poured scorn on Randolph for always, you know, taking money from his father or um making taking advantage of Winston's connections. I think I think he would have been so much happier if he'd have been given a clearer run at life, if he'd have been left to his own devices. You know that he would say that everything good he did, people would say, oh, that's only because of his father. And anything bad he did, they say, oh, how terrible for the old man. You know, that he was just locked in this sort of golden cage. And it's no wonder that he sort of began to resent it. Because I think, you know, clearly anyone who's the, the child of a great person, you know, that you're forever trying to, to be judged on your own merits, you know, that you want to be compared to yourself. You don't want to just be always compared in relation to what your father or mother or sister or brother may have done many years ago. And, uh, you know, you're, and I think more than anyone, Randolph was trapped in that. As you you wrote this book and looked at their relationship, did you get any takeaways about lessons on, you know, the father son dynamic that are universal to all father and sons? (laughs) I mean, yeah. So, so about a month after I finished the first draft, my wife had a baby. So it was one of those things, it was a girl, but I mean, I think it was one of those things that really focuses your mind. You sort of think about it, you know, you're you're much more alert to all of those things than than maybe you would have been otherwise. And I think one of the things that people criticize Winston for most is that sort of sense that he overindulged Randolph, you know, that he left him spoiled. But I think it's difficult to reproach someone for loving their child too much. I think much more damaging was the way he sort of imposed his own ambitions and his own values on Randolph. He never even considered whether Randolph might want to do something other than become a politician or he never really wondered whether, you know, Randolph wanted the life that Winston was sort of pushing upon him. And I think that's one thing. I think, you know, that you, no matter how much you might want something for your child, you have to let them find their own way. You can't force them into something that you, you know, that just because it, it's important to you, it may not be important to your own child. And I think, I don't think he can help this, but his you know personality was so strong. So he was so charismatic and so sort of powerful that I think Randolph, he couldn't ever see himself outside of his father's eyes. I think, you know, he, his own self-worth was entirely dependent on how his father was treating him on a, a given moment. You know, I don't think he ever had a sort of independent sense of self. So I don't know quite how that translates into a sort of universal rule for parenting. But I, th- I think what Winston could never respect was someone else wanting something other than the life Winston had wanted for himself. But at the same time, you know, he was affectionate and generous. And I think the thing that's most admirable was that his constant ability to forgive, no matter what Randolph did, he always forgave him. And I think forgiveness is a sort of very underrated quality. I thought one of the most moving things about Joe and Hunter Biden's relationship is Joe Biden's kind of constant ability to forgive his son and to give him another chance and to make him know that whatever he does, whatever happens, he still loves him. And I think Winston did that well, even when other people was were sort of shocked that he would still see his son again or talk to his son again. And do you think it's possible for someone to do, you know, world altering work, right? Great, you know, work that will be remembered for the ages and be a good father? Or is that you have to like choose one or the other? I mean, it's interesting. If you if you think about all those sort of great the the big three, the summits between Stalin and FDR and Winston Churchill through the war, you know, these three immensely powerful men who, as much as anyone in history, have have really changed the course of history. You know, that they really had they were extraordinary giants of men. And all of them had incredibly unhappy children. You know, there's a brilliant biography of Svetlana Stalin who had this sort of weird life where she actually ends up in the States. And she was completely crushed by Stalin. You know, all of FDR's children were unhappy. Randolph's sisters, one of them committed suicide. Another basically drank herself to death. And I think to go back to sort of where we began, you know, that 
the idea that great men need to be damaged in their childhood to go and sort of do great things. I think the sort of the sort of dark side of that is that they are because they're damaged, they are able to do great things, but they are damaged. And damaged people generally end up damaging the people around them, whether they intend to or not. And so I think I think it is very hard to imagine anyone who is the child of a great person ever having a sort of happy or fulfilled life because there's there are very few examples of anyone that has managed that. Yeah, I haven't. I can't think of it at the top of my head. No, I mean, it's impossible to you know. And the one thing I always think about too is like you look about here in America. There's like these families that were you know kind of dynasties, like the Roosevelts, for example. Uh, so we're talking about the Franklin Roosevelt side and like the Theodore Roosevelt side, and like none of their kids. I mean, Teddy Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was he did he became a general in the army, but like the rest of the kids, they they had unhappy lives too. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. So it's always like, man, uh, should you even try to go for? great things if it's going to destroy your family. I'm, I, I'd love to figure out someone who, who's able to sort of go through that Charybdis and Scylla and navigate through it. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, it's, it's really early to say, but I mean, it feels like the Obama children seem fairly happy and fulfilled, but you know, they're, they're, they're barely out of their teens, you know, they've got their entire lives ahead of them. But I remember when I was young, I worked with, um, I worked with, I won't say it was, but one of I uh, worked at a publishing house, and we published a memoir by a child of one of Britain's prime ministers, and they were just the most one of the most unhappy people I'd ever met, you know. And they spent their entire life wanting approval or attention from from their parent, and had never been given it. And it was, I mean, I think I always had that at the back of my mind. I was writing as I was writing this, you know, that you're always that you can't have both things. I don't think. I mean, logistically, you know, the demands on if your parent is a sort of significant politician, the demands on their time and attention are immense. But I think also, you know, the people that go on to do those things are egotistical and ruthless and selfish. And that's what enables them to get to the top. But it also means that they are sort of suboptimal parents. Well, Josh Ireland, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks so much, Brett. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. My guest today is Josh Ireland. He's the author of the book, Churchill and Son. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash Churchill and Son, where you can find links to resources when we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the A1 podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.